0: Okay, so we've finished up our series on the Ten Commandments. I hope that it proved uh, fruitful and edifying in your lives. And now we're only a few week, few weeks away from Advent season. And so our plan this year is to lead into the Christmas season uh, in the Psalms, making the psalmist's prayer our own prayer as we uh, await Jesus' arrival, as we wait patiently to celebrate the Incarnation. And on into the new year, we'll return to the Gospel of Luke. I haven't forgotten about it. And we'll finish that out as we lead on into uh, Good Friday and Easter. And I'm not sure yet, but I think after Easter, we'll spend some time in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the definitive passage on the resurrection and what it means for us. Anyway, we'll come to that in time. Today is sufficient for its own trouble. And today, we are in the writings of the prophet Habakkuk. And so allow me to read uh, this morning's passage once more. It's there on the screen for you, if you have it in your Bibles. It says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork, when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now, as it pertains to idolatry, the prophet Repeats here the standard biblical polemic. It's standard, yet it's devastating. In many passages, we find these themes repeated the inherent deception and futility and ultimate insanity of idolatry. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, it is the lie idolatry is. Turning from the incorruptible God, to corruptible things, creatures, is the fundamental deception, which darkens minds and poisons hearts. It's why the Ten Commandments begin with worship and idolatry, because it's the root from which human brokenness springs. So all that is present in our passage, and we've touched upon it recently, but the unique element that Habakkuk introduces to the conversation is speech. His polemic against idolatry is framed in terms of speech, speechlessness, and silence. Man speaks, his idols are speechless, and all the earth is silent before God. That's a very illuminating set of associations that the prophet makes. And so being that we're somewhat familiar with the biblical teaching on idolatry, we can take it a step further and consider it in relation to speech on the one hand and silence on the other. And really our aim, as the passage demonstrates, is to move from speech to silence, from constant chatter to Meditative worship. The passage begins with man creating speechless idols, and man talking over his idols. and then finally, it ends with the entire creation silent before the Lord. So that's where we want to end, and so that's where we'll begin. I want to end, uh, open, rather this morning's message with some observations about silence that I've lifted from theologian Rowan Williams. Now, I think these observations will prove illuminating as we turn to the passage. And Williams is concerned specifically with situations in which silence is imposed upon us and how that silence relates to our relationship to God. So Williams, he lists three situations or circumstances in which silence overtakes us. Now, it's our natural disposition to talk. We are chatty creatures by nature, some of us more than others. And so it's telling when silence is our natural reaction to something. And to be clear, we're not talking about situations when silence is forced upon us, parents gritting their teeth, saying, let's play the quiet game. But when silence is, is just what happens, when silence is the natural response. Now, William's first example is a familiar one. We've all had someone say to us, just tell me what's on your mind, as a blank expression settles upon our face. I had this experience with my nephew, my all-too-articulate nephew, uh, just the other day. Something was obviously bothering him, so I sat him down and I asked him, what's bothering you? And I realize now that's a cruel question to ask a six-year-old. He struggled to say anything try to articulate what was inside of him so i told him emotions are confusing it's okay it's okay and that may be, may have been his first encounter with something central to the human experience something we all know before an interview or an audition or something else like that a well meaning friend says just be yourself And I could hardly think of any statement more calculated to double or triple the stress involved in such a situation. Now, that's one instance in which silence overtakes us. Now, it's a rather small one compared to the second. One circumstance in which silence never fails to have its way is when we hear the words, the tests are positive, or whatever other phrase you might associate with that. The normal state of things in which our speech is normal and necessary is violently disrupted. A cancer diagnosis, a miscarriage, a friend's divorce, fill in the blank. We've been plucked out of our talkative, ordinary lives and flung into an articulate, confusing, dark world. William says, it's the silence that comes Not with our inability to express our real selves, but our inability to know how to react to a reality that seems completely out of control. And we've all had that experience. And the third uh, example that he gives is the silence that comes at the end of a really good book or a concert or a movie. The, The pause before the applause starts. Now, I don't much like the other silences. No one does, but this one's all right. The movie ends, the credits roll, and everyone sits in stunned silence. It's taken them, whether it be a book or a movie, whatever, to a place that they didn't know they had in them. It's made them feel and think and experience new things, which, for at the moment, are too much to normalize. Aaron and I nurtured our relationship on movie dates, and it's still one of my favorite things to go to a good movie and drive home, trying to find the words to express what we just experienced. And I'm sure we could set many other examples alongside these, where silence seems to overtake us. Our point is not to categorize every instance when silence overtakes us, but to analyze what those instances tell us about speech and silence itself. And so Williams concludes his reflection... By saying what all these experiences have in common is, I suggest, that they challenge our urge to get on top of things, to control. It's because, in the situations that we've just talked about, we've come up against something utterly unmanageable and uncontrollable that we're reduced to silence, again, A quote from Williams, he says, thinking back to the news in the hospital, in the hospital waiting room or the doctor's surgery, how do I normalize the knowledge that I'm going to die or that someone I love is going to die? And when I've been taken to places I did not know I had in me at the end of a really serious play or concert, again, I feel I can't normalize this. I can't just absorb it into my routine ways of being in the world. So, in other words, silence silence is our natural reaction to that which is beyond our control. We're silenced before the diagnosis. We're silenced before the grandeur of nature. We're silenced before the probing question, not because there's nothing to say. There's too much to say. We've come up against something which we cannot get our arms around that cannot be easily assimilated into our routine ways of understanding something ultimately that is more eloquent than we are and so this teaches something teaches us rather something about speech and that is we use our speech to control situations and things now to be sure Speech isn't entirely about control, but it is partially. If silence is about our lack of control, then speech is about our control. We use our speech to assert ourselves, to get on top of situations, to have our way. In his book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster, in his chapter on silence, says this One reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We are so accustomed to relying upon our words to manage and control others. If we are silent, he says, who will take control? And Foster is exactly right. To be silent is to be helpless. To speak is to be in control. One is helpless before the diagnosis, overcome by the situation, therefore, they can't find the words to say. Maybe there are no words to say, whereas we're quite talkative about more routine manners, more routine things of life. And so to talk is to be in charge. It's to master rather than to be mastered. I had an observation here that I pulled out for the the sake of not talking too much, um, but about Adam. And how does he assert his control over the animals? He he names them. He uses his speech. So consider the last time you were in an argument. Who was doing all the talking? Who had their way at the end of the argument? Typically the one doing all the talking. That's why the feeling that One's voice is not being heard is one of the more debilitating feelings that one can experience. It can be in marriage or in a friendship or at work. When one's voice is silenced, whether they're actually talking or not, their choice, their contribution, they are themselves silenced. It's writing off the whole person. So I want to take those connections, speech, and control, silence, and helplessness, and bring them to our passage. It sheds, I think, a new light upon the prophet's words. So let me read them again one more time. It says, What prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, Arise, and that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. So the striking thing about our passage is that it's almost a photo negative of God's creative act as it's depicted In Genesis 1 and 2, God forms man from the dust, and he breathes into him his own spirit. And the scripture says man became a living soul or a living being. And in our passage, the man forms his idol. He carves it from wood, and he overlays it in precious metals. And then, in the creation account, God speaks over the man. He speaks over his human creation, and he tells the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply. And the craftsman in our passage says to his handiwork, in a very similar manner, arise, awake. So, supposedly, the idol is the man's God, but it's exactly the reverse. The man is God over his idol. He's God over his creation. So, the idol's spirit doesn't animate the man. It's breathless, the prophet says. It has no life in it. It's the man's spirit that animates the idol, providing it its form and beauty and not the reverse. And, of course, it's the divine spirit that animates us. So, it's a strange paradox, idolatry is. Man serves an idol, but it's his own creation. And in serving his idol, he's actually serving himself. The idol is not something that has its own existence. Its existence is furnished and supported by its creator, the man. And so the man serves the idol, serves the idol, right? But the idol is really only the projection of its maker's desires and thoughts. He's serving the work of his own hands. He's serving his preconceived notions. And here's where deception creeps in with idolatry. It creates a vicious feedback loop. Our desires and thoughts create idols, and those idols reinforce our preconceived desires and thoughts. So it creates this nearly impenetrable casing of deception, so airtight in its circular logic and self-pleasing nature that The truth can barely slip in. And that's why our idols shape us, because we first shape them. We give them their existence and then, quote-unquote, serve them. But that's not our main point. I think the fundamental insight that we find here in the prophet's words is that idolatry is about control. Idolatry is about control. As we've said, an idol is nothing but the projection of our preconceived desires and thoughts. And conveniently, an idol can be cast and recast however we please. An idol doesn't disrupt anything in our lives, but it exists to keep things um, according to our Tidy, chosen order that we've created for ourselves. So, idolatry is about control. Now, that's in contrast to God, to whom we surrender our control. Our idols maintain the status quo, pairing ever so nicely with our dreams and desires and dispositions. God, on the other hand, serves to disrupt the status quo, upending our tidy lives and reorganizing them around a different scheme. More on that later, but the point is, control, the compulsive desire to have one's hands on the levers, is a central motivation to idolatry. Control is a central motivation to idolatry. Now, There are, of course, more blatant manifestations of this, and we all could point them out when we see them. They stand out because they're so obvious, but it's often more subtle than that. And as the passage suggests, the question by which to determine idolatry is, simply, who's doing the talking? The question to determine idolatry is, who is doing all the talking? Once again, notice the contrast made between the man and his idol. The idol, the prophet says, is speechless and breathless, while the man is chatting away. The man is the one speaking, and he speaks over his God. It has no speech, and he speaks to it, saying, arise, awake. So we can sum up. Idolatry is about control. And control is exercised through speech. A metric, then, by which we can determine idolatry in our own lives is to determine how much we are talking. And not talking in general, but talking in relationship to the Lord. Who's dominating the conversation? Now, more on that in a minute. Man speaks over his idols, but he's silent before God. Idols are something we can control, items firmly within our grasp, attendant to our bidding. Therefore, we can talk at them, we can talk over them, we can talk to them. But it's exactly the reverse before God. God is the encounter, the experience, the reality that we can never control. Try as we might, we cannot assimilate God into our world in an effort to make him manageable and accommodating. And it's actually very interesting. God is the very thing that idols lack. God is the very thing that idols lack, and that is speech and breath. God is speech, and God is breath, because God is word and and spirit. We are rendered speechless before the Father's supremely articulate word, his Son. And our breath is taken away before the Father's life-giving breath, his spirit. We're not dealing with mute and empty idols anymore. Our desires and imaginations projected onto reality. Rather, in the word and in the spirit, We're dealing with the one who contains reality. We're dealing with the one who is reality. Therefore, appropriate to us as those who derive our speech and breath from the one who is speech and breath is silence. As our passage says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Our silence is the recognition that the Lord cannot be identified with our idol-making ambitions. We cannot form him and overlay him with gold and silver and say, arise. Instead, in his presence, all our preconceived ideas and dreams and whatever else are rendered mute. We don't open our mouths to define or to propose or to assert anything, but instead we let the Word speak and the Spirit inspire. So, if speech is about control, about getting on top of and managing situations, then it can never be our first response to God. Because... There is no getting on top of or taking control when it comes to God, but only surrender. Surrender to a reality vast beyond comprehension, undefinable, and past finding out. And so if we want to come to God as God, and not merely as another idol of our own making, we have to give up control, and that is manifested in our silence. Now, we frame this in terms of control, but we'd be mistaken to apply that to God. We don't control God. He controls us. Yes, but it's more nuanced than that. God is in control, but he doesn't need control. The silence that overtakes us in God's presence is not him robbing us of the voice that he's given us, Instead, it's more like the situations that we've identified. Rather than something being taken from us, something is pressing in on us. It's not imposed upon us. We're silent before God, not because we're shut up, a hand placed over our mouths. We're silenced before God because we're opened up. Our finite horizons, our limited perspective, our small way of viewing things is expanded to infinite horizons as we approach the Creator Himself. So He's not shutting us up. He's opening us up to greater things, and that's why we're silenced. It's not a coercive submission imposed upon us, but rather it's a, a humble and, and glad submission that's acknowledged by us. And so we learn something important here about ourselves and about God, and, and it's, I think it's this, is that there's something about silence that's elemental in our relationship to God. Silence is one of those foundational things as we approach Him, and indeed, to our human nature. So, if we try to boil the prophet's message down, it might be something like this. For God to communicate who and what he is, he needs our silence. For God to communicate who and what he is, he needs our silence. Or, in other words, we have to stop treating him like an idol. We talk to our idols. We're silent before God. Thomas Merton, uh, he captures the idea well. He says, If there is no silence beyond and within the many words of doctrine, there is no religion, only a religious ideology. For religion goes beyond words and actions and attains to the ultimate truth only in silence and love. So, it's in our silence where God can be God, where his word is spoken to us in the Spirit. Now, another section I removed from the message, so it wouldn't get too long and I wouldn't lose your attention, is Jesus' trial. Briefly, notice how Jesus, before Pilate and before the high priest, is silent. Like a lamb before its shears in silent, is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's silent in that moment. And he's really been silent about his identity, all his ministry. And yet in that moment, in that silence is where he speaks the truth. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Living One, the Son of the Blessed One? And he says, I am. I am. There in his silence, he reveals himself. So when we're silent, or rather when we're silenced by Jesus' silence, He just lets us talk until we are disturbed by his own quietness. Finally, when we're silent, we're not imposing on him, right? When we we learn to settle down, we're not setting the agenda any longer. We're not muddying the waters with our chatter and talkativeness. All that has to be put aside. And there, in our stillness and openness, God is free to speak, He's free to reveal himself to us without misunderstanding. We speak to our idols. We are silent before God. Now, surely, I don't want to give the impression that God is not interested in hearing our voice. Nothing could be further from the truth. It might as easily be said that we are too silent rather than too talkative, more reluctant and sheepish in his presence than we ought to be. God invites our requests, and as our Father, He delights in our communication with Him. We ought to speak to Him. What I'm saying is not that we shouldn't speak, but but this, our speech should be responsive speech. Not that we shouldn't speak, but that our speech should be responsive speech. We take the initiative with our idols, as the passage depicts, before we imposed our will upon them, before we bestowed meaning upon them, they were mere tree stumps and shapeless stone. We spoke first, in other words. We are the creators. But in respect to the creator, he takes the initiative, and we are the ones who respond. Our speech invited and respected as it is, is always responsive speech. Our speech is preceded by silence. The Father's word, spoken in the Son, uh, the Son rather, spoken in the Holy Spirit, comes first. That's the first word, and we respond to that word. Now, this is the lesson that we learn um, in Peter's response to Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus's veiled glory is unveiled on the mountain, and suddenly Moses and Elijah appear by Jesus's side. And Peter, overwhelmed and disoriented, does what we all would do and blurts out something incoherent about building a tabernacle um, for Jesus and his two companions. Indeed, the scripture actually says that Peter did not realize what he was saying. He just started talking. And then, as the cloud settled upon them, a voice from the cloud said to them, This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. So, we must listen in silence before we can speak. And so, we've taken the long way to get here, but that's it. A very simple point this morning. Silence, then speech. And so as we uh, wind down and uh, in a moment prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I'd like to make three points about, um, about practical matters of silence. Now, the first is rather general, but I think very necessary in our day. And it is that we need to make room for silence in our digital distracted age. Now, a word that you hear a lot these days, um, is content. The media engines and uh, are, are restless, rather, in their pursuit to feed us more content. That is, more videos, more pictures, more audio clips to keep us tethered to our phones and computers and our TVs and whatever other devices. Genuine silence and stillness are hard to come across. Our days are filled with the constant din of Uh, YouTube and the news and the various social media platforms and what have you. The result is that the word is crowded out by the carers of the world. In the cacophony of voices, the one voice that we need to hear is drowned out. And what we need to do is, as Jesus counsels, go into your inner room, close the door, And pray to your father who is in secret. The father, Jesus says, is in secret. And we find him not in the hustle and bustle of the world, but in the secret place. And this was Jesus' own practice. He ministered in the hustle and bustle, obviously. But the scripture says he would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. He would leave the company. He would leave the noise behind and go to the wilderness. And whether the actual wilderness or our own metaphorical wilderness, whatever that prayer closet is, away from society, away from others, we need to establish a secret place to hear our secretive God. We need silence. Now, in the second point, uh, we want to move from silence more generally uh, to silence in prayer more specifically. And naturally, this is a bit more subjective, but the encouragement is this, to make time for silence in prayer, whatever that might look like. As much as we can drown out God's voice in busyness and distraction, so we can drown out His voice in our talkativeness in prayer rushing in, saying our thanks, uh, making our petition, and rushing out. Now, truth be told, sometimes that's the best we can do, and I don't want to be dismissive of that. But ideally, we'd want to make more space in our prayer lives to ruminate a bit, to be silent in God's presence, to create a heart of receptivity. Now, application in this regard will vary from person to person, depending on the habit of their prayer life. Uh, one might be overly chatty and therefore a more measured approach in prayer is necessary. Not using that time to blurt out whatever comes into one's mind, but instead being more deliberate and purposed. As Jesus says, don't, you know, don't worry about your many words. That's not going to, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So a more measured approach might be necessary. One, again, might be disposed to quiet meditation before they make their requests, and another might have uh, that uh, meditation after or interspersed throughout their prayer. Um, Prayer is as unique as each individual, and there's room for difference here. The important thing is that we practice silence before God, whatever that looks like, allowing His still, small voice to break in our hearts. Think of Elijah wasn't in the whirlwind, whir- whirlwind, wasn't in the firestorm, wasn't in the earthquake. He was in the still, small voice, the Lord was. And lastly, um, and this one is maybe a bit more spiritual and esoteric than the others, but we need to cultivate a silent heart before the Scriptures. And maybe this is where to start, um, It's more an inward disposition than it is certain practices and rituals, though those certainly help. We might put it this way. Rather than coming to master the Scriptures, something I often find myself guilty of, we often need to let the Scriptures master us. Not coming thinking, okay, I'm going to tear this apart and figure it out, but coming to say, I need to be mastered by the Scriptures. Again, I think the words of Thomas Merton are exactly right. He says, If we are merely speculative students of Scripture, breaking the words of God up into scientific fragments and deafening our spirit with the noise of human argument, which is too often the noise of the flesh with its spirit of fractions and divisions, then we cannot hear the word who speaks to us silently in the words of God. So silence is more than an absence of words. It's a spiritual approach to the spiritual word, right? It's this proper disposition of humility toward the word that's sharper than any two-edged sword that scrutinizes us and not we, it. So, to sum up, our silence is a sign that we take God seriously, that we regard him more than just another idol in our lives, talking over him, talking to him, setting the agenda. We want to be silent before God, recognizing that he's not in our control, nor uncontrollable. And so we want to do that now. As uh, our words cease, and Trent uh, plays the guitar in the background, let's allow, if just for a moment, silence to descend upon our hearts. And as we prepare to take communion, let those symbols, the bread and the cup, speak to you. Silent words, right? That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That God so loved us that he gave us his only begotten son. So, we still our voices and we quiet our hearts. And when we do, the word that we hear is not a word of condemnation or judgment, but of mercy and of grace and of peace. What we hear when we quiet down is the God who is love, speaking words of love to those whom he loves, us. And so let's take this time to silently worship and thank our God.